This is Real Estate Rookie episode 346. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I am here with my co-host, Tony J. Robinson. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And today, we have the one and only Andrew Cushman. Uh, if you guys are at all familiar with the Bigger Pockets ecosystem, he's had, I don't know, like 50 episodes uh, on the Real Estate Podcast, but it's his first time here on the Rookie Show. And Andrew is a an expert in the multifamily space. So we bring him on, and you're going to hear... Uh, his journey of getting started as a new multifamily investor, uh, what a real estate syndication is and why he made the transition from flipping houses to real estate syndication. Uh, you're going to learn about how to build your, your buy box for multifamily. We're going to talk about is now a good time to even get started in multifamily? And you'll be surprised, I think, by what Andrew's answer is. We recently had AJ Osborne on episode 340, and he talks about why now is a great time to get into self-storage. So I'm very curious as to what Andrew has to say to us as to why now is a great time to get into multifamily. Now, uh, before we keep going, I just want to give a quick shout out to someone in the rookie audience by the username of KDimsky79. And KDimsky left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and said, I love this podcast because it gives me the inspiration to pursue my real estate investing dreams. There's a good spread of expert guests like today's episode uh, and rookies telling their story. So if you are a part of the rookie audience and you have not yet left us an honest rating and review, please do. Because the more reviews we get, the more folks we can inspire and inspiring folks helps them take action and hopefully get their first deal, which is what we're all about here at the Rookie Podcast. Andrew, welcome to the show. Let's jump right into it. Andrew, I want to know, is right now a great time for a rookie investor to get into multifamily? Contrary to what the news headlines would have you believe, yes, it is. Um, One big thing to keep in mind is if you're looking to get into this, all this negative crazy stuff that you're hearing about interest rates going up and people can't make the mortgage payments and um, syndicators are collapsing. All this stuff is happening and it's true, but it only affects deals that were bought in the past. If you are new, if you're looking to get into new deals, all this actually benefits you because prices have come down 20 to 30%. And it's a myth that interest rates make uh, apartments not work. What happens is when interest rates go up, the cost of debt goes up and therefore the price has to come down in order to um, be able to uh, have the property generate enough income to pay for the debt. So if you're going into a new deal, all that means is you just buy it at the right price. You go get a loan. Doesn't matter if it's six, seven, eight percent, as long as you bought the property for the right price. And if it cash flows and works today, you're good to go. So all of this, all of the turmoil that you're hearing, if you're looking to get into the business, this is the chance you've been waiting for for the last ten years. Because the refrain for the last ten years is, it's, "Oh, it's so hard to get a deal. It's too hard. There's so much competition. Everyone's overbidding." And that was all true. That is all going away. And now is definitely um, the time to get in because, again, competition's way down. Pricing is down 20 to 30 percent. Seller motivation is up, right? It used to be you had to put like hard money, which means before you even do any due diligence, you can't get your deposit back. So there's a huge risk risk there. That is going away. And also keep in mind, it is impossible to perfectly time the market. We will only know when the bottom is when we're looking back going, oh, dang, that was it. I wish I bought more. So if you take advantage of the disruption now, 
and pick up the right properties that you can hold long term, nobody has ever regretted buying a nice multifamily property 20 years ago. You cannot find that person. So if you be that person who starts buying now, then you're setting yourself up for success down the road. And again, now is the chance we've been waiting for for the last decade. Andrew, you said that uh, that some of the properties that aren't performing well or that are struggling, it was properties that were, that were purchased in the past. What were some of those mistakes that you think those buyers made that set them up to struggle given this current economic climate? And what can we learn from that as new investors? I'd say there's two main mistakes that buyers of all kinds made from mom and pop to syndicators to big institutions. And one of them is that people got a little too aggressive with their assumptions. Um, and this kind of addresses a broader topic of when you're looking at deals of making assumptions that have a high probability of coming true. And so a given example is, you know, I saw deals get sent to me where um, the person or the group buying it was assuming 7% rent growth for the next five years. That's unlikely to happen. Um, Or, you know, they, you know, uh, property taxes only going up 2% a year for the next five years. Again, not likely to happen, especially if you're in places like Texas, where they, you know, it's like it's a whole game to see how high they can jack up your property taxes. So the number one mistake that has led to current distress was overly optimistic, overly aggressive assumptions in underwriting. The second big one, and this is one where it's a mix of some people were being irresponsible, um, some people just got caught off guard, and also just the fact that nobody saw a 500 basis point interest rate increase coming. So what happened is a lot of something like 70 or 80 percent of commercial real estate and including apartments in 2021 and 22 was purchased with floating rate loans. And you know if you buy most most single family houses, you buy a mortgage, you buy the property, you get a mortgage, the rate's fixed for 30 years, you're good to go. In the commercial world, the debt works quite different. And it's often due in three years, five years, seven years, or 10 years. Um, And there's some exceptions, but much shorter timeline. And a lot of the mass majority of the properties in the last couple of years were bought with loans that were due in like two, three, or five years. So again, that means they're due this year or next year or in 2025. And on top of that, the the interest rate moves as the market moves. So someone bought an apartment complex, they might have been paying a 3% interest rate, and today they're paying 8, which means they can't make the mortgage payment anymore, which means they can't you know, the lenders might might foreclose or um, the values come down 30% and they can't refinance into another loan. And so now they have this huge balloon payment that's due in three months. They can't refinance. The property's not worth enough to sell. They can't make the mortgage payment. And all of a sudden you've got sellers that have to sell and have motivation. That is something we have not seen in a decade. And that's part of what's leading to both the distress and the opportunity. Yeah. Andrew, too, and super incredible points. And I, I couldn't agree more. And just on that first point about being overly optimistic, and Ash, I want to get your your thoughts on this too. But I, I think for a lot of new investors, it is tricky to walk that line of how aggressive or optimistic should I be when I'm analyzing a deal? Because when the market's hot, like how it was in 2021, 2022, uh, if you were too conservative with your numbers, you would miss out on every single deal. 
And if you weren't conservative enough, you could end up in a situation where you buy a deal that doesn't necessarily pencil out. So Ash, I want to ask you first, um, like as you were looking at properties 2021, 2022, how were you striking that balance of not being too conservative so that you were missing out on everything, but also not being too lax to where you would potentially buy a bad deal? Yeah, I'm definitely very conservative when I run my numbers. I definitely don't, you know, say like, oh, maybe I can, you know, get cheaper dumpster service or, you know, for the apartment complex or anything like that. I am very good at being diligent about sticking to my numbers and also like over inflating my expenses a little bit. So what I did to kind of pivot through this change in the market is I found where I could add additional revenue to properties. So one of the things was like, okay, we're buying land. Can we sell any of the timber that's associated with it? What other multiple income streams can we generate? Can we charge people to park their RVs in this huge parking lot? Things like that. So that was where I had to learn. Like I have to think outside of the boxes. Somebody's looking at this property and they're seeing, okay, I can rent this house out for, for that amount. I can rent the barn out for this amount. What other ways can I generate revenue off of this property where I can now create the income that will make this deal work for me? Where maybe another investor coming in is saying, I can't pay this price because it doesn't make sense or I can't use this type of lending where I could. So that's where I had to pivot and change as to finding a diff- a different ways to generate revenue off of properties. Yeah, Ash, I really like some of those creative things that you mentioned. And, and that's, you know, in multifamily the money is really made in operations and like some of the things you just mentioned are like, that's a, those are perfect examples of what, what makes someone a really good operator versus just an okay operator. In the last 10 years, you can get away with being an okay operator. Now you're going to have to do the things that you were just talking about. And, you know, Tony, you nailed what has been the dilemma for the last five, six years is you wanted to be conservative and realistic so that you hit your numbers, you bought a good deal, you we're able to pay your investors, all of those things. But if you overdid it, you just never get a deal. And so, and, and I, I, if, if you find the easy, concise answer to that, please let me know because after, you know, we've been analyzing thousands, literally thousands of deals. I'm not quite sure the answer, but this is what I boil it down to uh, a phrase that um, uh, my, one of my old original mentors told me is, he said, it is better to regret the deal you didn't do than to regret the deal you did do. And so when it when it's tough to decide, that's what I lean on. That is great, Andrew. And I think that's great advice to, you know, any new investor looking forward as to, you know, what they're looking at to buy right now. And as to if, okay, can I fudge the numbers a little bit? No, you can't <laughs> to make this deal work. <laughs> no, you'll, re- might, you'll probably regret it later. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, Andrew, this is all great information and just the starting point of what we're going to talk about in today's episode going forward. But first, let's take a short break. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. 
Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent retirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. We know, and you all know, why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a complete breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers... Proof of income verification. So RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability and earnings. With Plaid certified tenant income and asset reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. It's time to say goodbye to that whole gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with RentReady. Now, RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering the six-month plan for only $1. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP Like Bigger Pockets Investor for six months of rent ready for only $1. So we just heard from Andrew about how past problems that buyers are having are now surfacing in multifamily. Let's get into some kind of consideration is if you want to start multifamily investing, what you should be doing today. So Andrew, let's kind of start from the beginning. Do you have an example of a deal that you could go through with us where maybe everything did not work out okay and you had some lessons learned? Yeah, I mean, since we're since we're on the rookie podcast, we'll start with the first one. Um, I wasn't a rookie to real estate. I'd been flipping for four years, but I was a rookie to multifamily. And, uh, you know, my, my first, and I did have a, mentor um, and a coach that I had hired where we're actually still friends and, and business partners to this day. So I wasn't just going at, you know, complete, completely winging it. Uh, however, um, you know, people say, well, how did you get that first deal? Well, it was really a combination of um, enthusiasm and uh, being a little too naive. Uh, our first deal, this is now this was back in 2011 when you could literally just go on LoopNet and pull up a huge list of properties and say, I want to go look at these 10. I'll come out in three weeks and they'll still be there. Uh, not the case for the last 10 years, but that's what it was then. And that's how I found the deal. Literally just went to a, looked on the map at a market that I thought would be good. Didn't have all the good, you know, the screening procedures that we have in place now. 
started calling a, you know talking to a broker that had a ton of listings in that market uh, he saw a, a sucker coming from a mile away and said I'm going to talk to this guy and I ended up buying a mostly vacant like 75% vacant 92 unit um, 1960s and 70s construction property uh, out in Macon Georgia on the complete opposite side of the country from me and uh, that was our first deal I had to raise a total of $1.2 million to get that done. It was not financeable. It had to be all cash. Uh, almost, I completely underestimated how hard it would be to raise that money in that environment. And we are kind of getting back to that environment today where everyone's scared of real estate like they were in 2011. And it... Um, I had to extend the contract period twice by adding more money to the deposit, non-refundable, just days before I had to close, got just enough money raised to close, and then took six months after closing to have to finish raising it. Fortunately, our documents allowed us to do that. Um, that is probably the biggest reason why I started turning, you know, my hair really started turning gray about about that about that time because it, it was it was major stress. Um, Andrew, Lee, at least you got some hair. <laughs> you could you could join the the shaved head club with me. See, but, but see, you 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 got a strong presence on the lower side of your uh, your, uh, your, uh, your, uh, your, uh, your you know I I, I got I got if I I have even more gray there, so I'm just like you know not, not gonna work. Um, and so you know, and some of the mistakes that we made is. Number one, um, well, actually, I'm going to start with some of the things we did right. You said, well, why did you do that on the other side of the country? Well, for one, um, my philosophy is in live where you love to live and invest where the returns are the best. So I live in Southern California. You could not pay me enough to be a landlord here and have to deal with the garbage the legislature makes you go go through. So we, we said, all right, we want to be in the Southeast United States where the economics are good, the demographics are good, it's business friendly, it's landlord friendly, all of these things. And why did we go straight to 92 units, which I don't recommend most people actually do, um, is because, well, we said, well, we want a property that's big enough to hire and support its own full-time staff that works for us because I'm going to have to asset manage this thing from the other side of the country. I'm not going to be flying out to fix a water heater because, number one, I don't know how to do it anyway. Um, and then, two, so I want people who are there all day. They live there. That's their job to run it. So that's why we went big, and we're really glad we did that. Some of the mistakes were dramatically underestimated the cost of the renovations, um, in addition to uh, those old neglected properties are like a rotten onion. You peel off a layer and the layer underneath is even worse. Um, we had multiple episodes of vandalism where people would rip out the copper pipes, not even turn off the water. Like they must have gotten soaked. I get, yeah, I, like if I was going to vandalize that, at least make sure I'm not getting wet. So if the cops see me on the street, it's not obvious who it was me. Um, so they would, not only do they rip out the copper, they flood the unit. So there goes $50,000. Um you know, in it was a rough neighborhood. When we walked into the head of the police, the police chief, and we said, "Hey, here's what we want to do. We want to partner with you guys to clean this up." He looked at us and said, "Good luck." Um, like that's kind of not the response I was going for. Now we did get it cleaned up. We did get the crime reduced. Um, when we bought it, it was collecting eight thousand dollars a month on ninety-two units. We, you know, quintupled that basically five times over, and we did sell it for a good profit. However. Lots of mistakes, lots of lessons learned. Um, don't go buy a giant, neglected, highly distressed property in a bad area for your first deal. So, Andrew, just one thing I want to I want to question before we get into the nitty gritty of this detail or of this deal is you said you were flipping for four years prior to that. What was the motivation for transitioning from flipping to multifamily? It is, it is multifaceted. One flipping 
is a great way to get started in real estate to generate chunks of money and build up some cash. But unless you're one of these people who is going to build like a seven-figure flipping business and have other people run it, it's just another intense job and you're only as good as your last flip. You sell a house, you put some money in the bank, you got nothing left to show for it. I mean, again, it's good. It's a good business. It can be great money. But if you're looking for something residual, it doesn't typically provide that. Uh, the second is we, and my wife is my business partner. So when I say we, I'm typically referring to her and I. Uh, we had great 2009, 10, 11 great years. Uh, because everyone, again, was scared of real estate. Prices were coming down. We had almost no competition. Well, then everyone else started to figure out the opportunity. And a lot of no one had equity anymore. And so we said, all right, flipping's great, but it's a, just another intense job. What would produce like more residual, more long-lasting wealth? And we said, okay, we just had a huge recession, which probably means we're going to have a long expansion coming after that. Expansion means job creation, household formation. And everybody either got foreclosed on and can't buy a house for the next seven years, or they know somebody who gets foreclosed on and they're scared to buy a house for the next seven years. So that means put those two things, all those things together, there's probably going to be a whole lot of rental demand. So let's go learn how to do apartments. And so that is how and why um, we transitioned to apartments in 2011. What about the, you talked about that you raised money for this deal. So did you do a syndication? Was this private money you took on? Can you kind of explain the funding of this deal? Yeah. The, so the funding was, um, it, we, did, we did a syndication, which um, like you mentioned, is basically you put a deal together, you, you put a pro forma and a package together and say, hey, you know, we're buying this apartment complex. Here's the business plan. Here's what we think the returns are going to be. We need $1. million to do this. You know, everyone can invest 25000 or 100 or whatever you have. So that's how we funded it. Uh, as I mentioned, we ran short because uh, I underestimated how hard it was to raise $1.2 million back then. You know, the, some, my, my very first check was my mom. And then uh, the checks after that were the people who were giving us the money to do to flip the houses. We had some private lenders that, you know, funded those. And then um, the final 200000 we we didn't want to retrade, um, or, or you know, or go back to the seller and try to change the pricing. So what we did, we said, "Hey, look, the honest truth is, is this property has got a lot more work to be done than we anticipated, which is 100% true. We're not going to ask you for a price reduction. However, we want you to help us out by carrying a note." And loaning us the remaining balance of the funds, and I think we ended up settling on like two or three hundred thousand. That's actually how we finished it off: is we got the seller to carry some for us, um, and then we paid him off when we stabilized it and refinanced it a couple of years down the road. Um, but Andrew, one of the things you said, which which stood out to me, was that you took these relationships that you had with your private money lenders in your flipping business, and they were some of your early investors in this deal. And in the Real Estate Partnerships book, Ash and I talk about the benefit of starting smaller with your investors uh, and then testing the waters there to move up to something bigger. So in a flip, I mean, what you're, you're probably holding money maybe six months to a year when you've got a flip that you're working on, maybe even shorter time frame than that. So if for whatever reason that partnership doesn't work out, it's a six month partnership, right? But since you have built that relationship with people, now it's easier to go into a more expensive asset where you know the the time horizon was you know whatever three to five years to kind of get that thing stabilized. And that's another good point. You know, if you're saying if you're some, if you're list, someone's listening to this saying, well, okay, this is all great, but I don't have any track record. I want to buy a ten unit, but I have no track record multifamily. Start with the people 
who know your track record in whatever you are currently doing, whether that that you know whether you've been flipping for five years and you have private investors or you've been doing notes or you know maybe you've been working as a pharmacist for the last 10 years and all your coworkers know you as someone who's honest and trustworthy and hardworking that is you know lean on any kind of track record you have in in your network there um it doesn't i mean every, every single one of us in multifamily or anything started at zero at some point with no track record and so you know, it, you know it, it don't let that be a hurdle. Figure out what else do you have that counts as track record, and say, well, you know, yeah, maybe I've never. And again, this only applies if you're raising money. If you have your own cash, this this goes away. But if you're looking to bring in other people, leverage the other you know characteristics and strengths you have, the other things that you've done to say, yeah, this is something new, but here's why I should be successful at it because of you know all this other things that I've done. And even if you have your own cash, like think about all the big companies, even they've got cash, they're still going out there and raising capital from other people because it allows you to do even bigger deals, right? Um, I, I'd love to, Andrew, break down the numbers on that first syndication. Because I think for a lot of investors, when they hear you had, you know, 92 units, like that's, you know, like, what is that, you know, $1.2 million raise, but the, the pie kind of gets split up quite a few ways when you're doing a syndication, especially the first go round. Uh, the, the syndicators are typically a little bit more generous uh, to the, the limited partners to make sure that they can uh, get a good return. So if you can first break down the structure for us, Andrew, on what that deal looked like. And then if you're open, like what was the actual profits that you generated from that deal? Yeah. So when we closed on it, um, Technically, I was supposed to get a $50,000 acquisition fee. Uh, I don't think I actually took that until a year or two later. Um, the split of profits from operations and sale was uh, back then 70% to investors, 30% to sponsor. Today, it's much more common for that to be 80 to investors and 20 to sponsor. Um, you know, when we sold it, it we, oh, what did we sell that? We bought it for 699,000 or something right around there. And we ended up selling it for like 1.92, um, like about five years later. I don't remember what the like internal rate of return and all that stuff was. It was, uh, I mean, it was good, but I, I, I truly do not, do not remember what, what that was. Um, and, uh, so again, it was, you know, a lot of mistakes and lessons learned, but, um, that's, uh, that, that, that was the buy, the sell, the splits. Uh, we did, like I said, we did refinance about two years in and, um, we, when we refinanced, we paid off the seller and then we returned, I don't remember, again, I don't remember the percentage, but we re returned the majority of the original capital to investors. So like if someone had put in 100000 at the beginning, when we re refinanced a couple of years later, they might have gotten like 70000 back or something like that. But then they still retained their ownership percentage. Like they don't get diluted. Uh, and that's still pretty much the structure that we use today, uh, where, you know, maybe we got a, a Fannie Mae, you know, bank loan. Well, Fannie Mae's government agency kind of, but it's a, you know, a, a, a primary mortgage. And then we syndicate the equity. We put in some ourselves and profits are generally split 80, 20. And, um, you know, we typically operate for four, uh, about, about five years. Um, and then if there's a refinance in the middle, then we use, we'll typically use that to give some of the original capital back so that there, you know, there's less risk, right? If you put in a hundred and you get, 40 or 50,000 back, but your ownership percentage stays the same. Now your risk level is down because absolute worst case scenario, you can only lose what's still, still invested. So, uh, does that kind of hopefully 
I, I want to, I do want to differentiate because the, how things were done and structured 12 years ago is a little different than, than now, but that's how it was done. Andrew, I can't even get past the 92 units for 699,000. <laughs> yeah, isn't that crazy? Less than 10,000 a unit. I spend more in renovations these days on a unit than I paid to buy those things. Yeah, crazy. So what would your recommendation be? So that's how you got your start multifamily funding and putting together a deal that way. What would be your recommendation today as a rookie investor as to how they can fund a smaller multifamily deal? Recommendations in terms of kind of like the overall process or just or just how to fund how to get started or just how to fund it? How do you think they should start like find say they have no money? No money. Okay. How should they go and fund a deal? Should they be looking for bankable products because it's great to get a bank loan right now or should they be doing a syndication or try and get seller financing? Whatever advice you have as to like this is a great way to try to find a way to fund buying your first multifamily. So the good news is um, when it comes to multifamily commercial property, so five units and bigger, uh, the debt is not necessarily based on your credit score and your personal cash flow. It's based on the cash flow uh, that the property produces. Yes, they're going to look at your credit score. So if they pull your credit and you're a 321, they're going to say, ah, maybe we don't want to fully trust this person. But you don't have to have stellar credit. It's not like getting a mortgage today where if you're below 750, they don't want to give you a mortgage anymore. Um, you, you don't have to have perfect credit. So that is the good news. Also, the good news is the money for the down payment, um, for the renovations, for the transit, all of that, does not have to come from you. Um, you know, now these days we invest in every deal we do, but the, for a lot of the deals we didn't because we didn't have the cash. So if you're getting started and you're saying, Hey, you know, let's say you live in Dallas and you find an, a great 10 unit that's, you know, a couple of miles from home. You're like, Oh man, I really want to acquire this property, but I don't have the money. Um, the ways to overcome that are number one, you can do joint ventures, which means you just, you and a couple of people who have the money become equal partners in an LLC and then you purchase the money and you all have decision making capabilities. This is what keeps it from being a syndication. You don't have to worry about SEC rules as long as you are all, again, it's a JV, you all have management responsibilities. So you are putting in basically the sweat equity, you're finding the deal, maybe you're going to run the deal and then you bring these people in, they provide the cash. That's uh, one way to do it, joint venture. Uh, another is to, again, syndicate. This is where uh, you are finding the deal. You're going to operate the deal. You put together a pro forma and you say, okay, I need, let's see, 10 units in Dallas. Uh, and I, maybe you're going to go raise a million dollars, I mean, $1.5 million and say, you're going to go out to people that you already know, have a relationship with and say, Hey, here's, here's what I'm doing. You know, here's an opportunity for you, for, for you to you know, earn some passive income and some wealth creation you know, can, do you, do you want to, you know, invest in this opportunity? You're not, you're not asking for money. You're providing a service and an opportunity. And, and it's important to make sure you frame it that way. That is so key right there. That phrase you just said. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that, I mean, not only do you need to internalize that, but you need to project that when you're, when you're talking to investors. And it's a hundred percent true, but uh, you know, a lot of, it's just, you know, it's just kind of ingrained in our nature. Like, oh, I don't want to ask for money. Well, you're not. You're you're literally providing a service and an opportunity, especially if you're doing it the right way. Um, 
so you know syndication is one partners is one you also you could get um you know private debt uh make sure if you do that it's for like a large portion let's let's say you need um let's use some smaller numbers here let's just say you need a total of five hundred thousand dollars and you've got a hundred thousand um, maybe you can get some private debt for four hundred thousand uh, as long as you disclose that to the lender some will allow it some won't um, and then the one thing to keep in mind is unlike single family multifamily has much higher transaction costs you have much larger deposits you have very expensive attorneys involved going through loan documents and purchase and sale contracts. Um, the appraisals are more expensive. There, I mean, there's a whole host of other things involved that can add up to be fifty, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, depending on the size of the transaction. Um, now, if you don't have that cash, that is where you definitely will need to find a partner. Um, so, going back to that very first deal. Uh, in 2011, where we were raising 1.2 million, um, and again it was all syndicated, I had to front $125,000 just to get it to closing. Now that is a cost of the deal, and that is ref- as the sponsor, if you're syndicating, that is refundable to you out of the raise because you know, again it's it's a cost of the deal. Um, but you have to have that money up front just to just to get to closing, to make the deposit, to pay the attorney, all of those things. Um, so if you don't have that, then your first step is going to be fi- is to find somebody who does and who who wants to do this with you. And again, if you're going to go buy a five or a ten unit in your backyard, that that amount's going to be smaller. It's it scales up. What would you say would approximately be the dollar amount where it's worth it to do a syndication? That's a really good question. So your first one in terms of dollars is not going to be worth it. But if in the but you have you have to look at it differently in that if you are looking to syndicate apartments or, or really any other asset and build a large portfolio and build a business out of it making money yourself on your first deal or two is like goal number 4 goal number 1 is to learn like there's just I mean you you can learn a lot through podcasts and coaches and mentors and books but there's a certain point at which you just got to do it and and learning through guided experience so number one you're looking for experience number two you're looking to build that track record so that you can say hey I have actually done these type of deals before because you can get started without a track record but it does get easier the bigger track record you have um. And then, you know, the more you can go to to the lenders and say, I have experience, I have other loans, I'm in this market, those things build on each other. So when you're doing your first deal and if you're looking to get into syndication, your goals are track record, uh, adding investors to your your list, you know, building relationships with brokers, all of those things, then profiting from it. That's hopefully a nice benefit of doing all those things. You're, you got to really look longer term and say, realize and understand that the first few years typically of building a syndication business is not all that lucrative. It only gets lucrative. Well, I shouldn't say only. It typically gets lucrative years down the road when you've built it the right way. We know and you all know why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a complete breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, 
Rent Ready now offers proof of income verification. So Rent Ready's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability and earnings. With Plaid certified tenant income and asset reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. It's time to say goodbye to that whole gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. Now, Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for only $1. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor for six months of Rent Ready for only $1. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So Andrew, one of the things you said earlier that, that really stood out to me was that you live where you love to live, but you invest where it makes the most sense. And you know, you, you lived in Southern California, very expensive market, decided to invest in, in Georgia, a much more um, affordable place to invest. But how did you decide on what your buy box was as you moved into that market? And for rookie investors today, what would your recommendation be for that first commercial deal on how to build that buy box? My buy box back then was basically anything that someone would sell to me. Is that is that your advice for rookie <laughs> investors today? That is my advice to absolutely not do. And, and candidly, that, that is one of the reasons that most investors start off in lower end properties is because they seem affordable. The seller's willing to give them, give a sell it to you because no one else wants to buy it. And, you know, what I like to say is, those properties are cheaper and more available for a good reason. And it's the, the grass is greener over the septic tank. Just, just, just don't step there. Stay away. Uh, so our, our buy box now, or, you know, if you're someone who's getting started, um, Number one, I get just decide a number of things. Like, are you a cash flow investor or are you an appreciation, looking for appreciation or a little bit of both? Um, I would recommend, especially in the beginning, and, and especially, you know, if you can't take a big financial hit, if something goes wrong, make sure, make sure you've got at least some good cash flow to sustain the property. So you can decide if you're cash flow or appreciation. Um, are you going to self manage or, or use third party? Um, but it just in general terms, you want to look for properties that are in areas where, you now this could be a city on the other side of the country, um, or this could be just picking the right neighborhood in your backyard. But the key things to success, getting started in multifamily, is buy in an area where you have population growth, job growth. Those, those are, those two are the biggest. Beyond that, you want um, good median incomes or high median incomes. When, when we say high median income, that is that means high relative to the rent you are charging. Uh, Sixty thousand dollar median income is pretty good in in secondary markets in Georgia. That is the poverty level in ca Southern California. So you have to basically what you're looking for is can can the average or median person easily afford the rent that you're going to charge? You want to buy in areas with low crime. 
And uh, especially in the beginning, I highly recommend buying um, properties that are not in flood zones. Yeah, I had a very bad experience with a, a single family home in a, in a flood zone. Um, yeah, worst deal I think I've done so far. But anyway, um, I, I want to talk a little bit because you said population growth, job growth, um, but like we're, we're like low crime as a new investor, where should I go to get this information? Like what are some tried and true data sources to identify, Hey, what's the median household income? Is the population getting bigger or smaller, et cetera? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I've got a couple of good, good sources for you. Number one, um, uh, we did a, uh, on, I guess it's the OG bigger pockets podcast, uh, episode five seventy one. Uh, we went through our whole, the whole screening process that we use and how to do that. Like how to identify, the neighborhoods that I just talked about. Um, so go check that out. And then there was a follow-up episode shortly after that where we we dove into some underwriting stuff. So check those two out. However, uh, if you are open to investing, just again, live where you want to live, invest where the returns are good, go to the um, Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies. They have an awesome map on that website of the every county in the United States, and it's color-coded, which makes it super simple for you know guys like me who just like it easy and visual. And basically, you want to invest in the counties that are dark blue because that is where you have the greatest population growth and greatest migration. So if you're like, oh, Andrew, I have no idea where I want to start. It's a big country. Go get that map and start with the blue counties. Uh, the next thing is uh, some other really good places to get data is we subscribe to uh, Esri, E-S-R-I. Uh, I think it's only like a hundred dollars or a hundred something a year. It's not terribly expensive, but they have uh, a tremendous amount of the demographic data that I'm talking about, like again, population, income, all that kind of stuff. Um, that, that we That is what we use for every deal we're looking at to this day. Um, if you just Google FEMA flood, flood maps, F-E-M-A, uh, that's the government website that shows you the maps of all the different, what's in a flood zone and what is not. Uh, you also want to go to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, BLS.gov. That is a wealth of information for job growth, um, population growth, income, basically all the government uh, uh, statistics. And then there's another one. Uh, it's called Rich Blocks, Poor Blocks. It's exactly what it sounds. Uh, just those four words all jammed together, .com. And uh, it all it will show you median income uh, for different neighborhoods. And that uh, that's a key point is you'll see a lot of like broker pro formas and offering memorandums where it's like three mile radius, median income, $90,000, right? Well, if you've ever been to a city like L.A. or Dallas, you know, sometimes if you just cross the street, it can be a completely different world. And so you do not want to just take a big average area and say, oh, the median income is good. You really want to drill down to the neighborhood that your property is in. Um, in terms of crime, there's about a billion different websites out there like Crime Mapper and a whole bunch. Just just Google uh, you know, crime statistics in whatever city you're in. And uh, you, you'll, you'll probably find about 16 different resources for that. That was great, Andrew. There was a couple there that I hadn't heard of. And I always love to watch Tony vigorously Google things <laughs> and look things up. <laughs> but uh, there, there's two that I would add is uh, brightinvestor.com. And then that's a, a newer software. And then also uh, Neighborhood Scout, too, is, is one that I have used. Yeah. Neighborhood Scout is good. Um, 
also, you know, if you let's say you've kind of already identified some markets. Let's say you're like, okay, I'm trying to decide between Boise and Dallas and Atlanta. Go to the big, the big brokerage sites like Berkadia is really good, but Berkadia, Marcus and Millichap, Cushman and Wakefield, CBRE, all of these, and sign up to be on their, basically their distribution list. Those guys put out reports on sometimes monthly, at least quarterly above all these different markets. And one, you know, and they are brokers, so they're a little um, optimistic at times, but they do typically provide all the sources of, for the material they're referencing. And so they'll, they'll list out all the, all the announcements of, you know, new jobs and new plants being built and all that kind of stuff. So that's another really good free resource is to go get yourself added to the list of the various brokerages um, that have offices uh, in whatever markets you want to invest in. That's a great tip right there. Um, that was like a really great uh, informational deep dive into different resources where you can find uh different stats and data to actually verify the market that you're in. You know, everyone can go on the bigger pockets forums. They can go on Instagram anywhere and they can see, you know what, Andrew's he's really successful in Houston, Texas right now. You know what? I, I want to do what he's doing. I'm going to go to Houston because he's doing it. And yes, maybe some investor is successful in a, a market, but that doesn't mean that their strategy or their why or what their reason is for investing or their end goal is going to align with yours. So just because somebody is investing in one market or location doesn't mean that it is a good fit for what you want to do. So make sure that you are always going and you are verifying, verifying, verifying. So we could have Andrew right now just tell us, okay, right now, what's the best market to invest in? And Dave Meyer does this all the time where he'll pick a random market and he will just go through on bigger pockets and say, this is the good of this market. This is the bad of this market. This is who should invest there or not. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be a perfect match for what you're doing. So you always want to go and you want to pull this information on your own. Getting you know a market tip, hot tip from somebody is a great starting point but make sure you're not just taking somebody's word for it and you're actually going and verifying that data from a lot of these resources. Let's talk a little bit, Andrew, about kind of building out your team. So say that you've you've chosen your market, uh, you've got an idea of what your, your buy box is, but as you actually go through the steps of purchasing, setting up, managing, et cetera, um, I'm assuming you're not doing all this stuff yourself, right? So who, who are the team members that you need to build out? How does it differ from traditional single family investing? And then what steps are you taking to find those people? So first off, go get David Green's book, Long Distance Real Estate Investing, even if you're doing it in your backyard. And that will make sense uh, in a moment. The big difference is when you're going from single family to multifamily, there's some additional team members that you need that you may not necessarily need in in single family um so you know team in multifamily that will often uh involve property managers uh and you know do you self-manage do you use third party that's a personal kind of business decision that depends a lot on what your goals are um my recommendation would be if you are just getting started and don't have any property management experience at all, either partner with somebody who does or hire a third party, but pretend they're not there. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is you are in, and you have to have the right third party property company to let you do this. Um, but approach it as they're co-managing with you 
and you're there to to help them and 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 to you know make whoever's working on your property you know their job as easy as possible so that you can see the systems that they have so that you can see how they address problems as they come up um and 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 kind of kind of learn uh, on the job what again what I don't recommend doing is just Unless you enjoy it and you, you live right close by and you want to be heavily involved, don't go buy 10 units and try to manage it by yourself with no mentors and no experience. Uh, but also don't buy your 10 unit and hand it off to a third property manager and say, hey, send me the report in a month because that won't work out either. So do, do, do something in the middle. So you're going to want to have property management um, as, again, whether that's going to be you hire an assistant to help you do it or you get somebody third party. Uh, you're also going to need contractors. Um, I guess that's probably similar to single family. However, if you're buying 10 units, um, you're going to need someone who probably has a little more bandwidth than the, you know, the contractor can, that, that can handle one or two houses at a time. So make sure your contractor has the, 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 the size and the, the ability to handle bigger jobs. Um, you're going to need attorneys. And that is, and again, if you're syndicating, that's a whole separate attorney. You have a syndicate, basically a syndication attorney. And they're not cheap. <laughs> no, um, typically they're flat fee and that flat fee can be anywhere from 10 to $30,000, uh, for, for syndication. And that gets back to the question like, Ooh, what, at what point is syndication worth it? Um, you know, if you're trying, just doing 10 units, it might not be worth it for the profit unless you're using that as a stepping stone. So, and that's exactly a perfect example of why, because there's, boom, 15 grand gone just, just to get the syndication paperwork done. Uh, you're also going to need uh, an attorney to, like, to uh, help negotiate and review loan documents and the purchase and sale agreement. Uh, I, I know every state's a little different in single family, but in California, when you buy a single family, it's just title and escrow. There's, we don't involve attorneys. I know other states, uh, I believe mostly on the East Coast, you got to like sit down and have attorneys all handle everything, if I'm correct. Um, in multifamily, whether you're required to or not, well, I, actually one of the biggest mistakes I see some people make is be their own attorney. Do not do that in the multifamily world. You will end up with some nasty clauses in your loan docs that you're not going to find out until way down the road, and you are going to wish you'd spent the money on the attorney. So you want to have a good attorney? You want to have good lenders, and um, I have actually found it most beneficial to have a really good loan broker, somebody who can take your the needs of your property and your finances out and try and match it to the best loan for your business plan and what you're trying to do. You're going to need a really good insurance broker for the same reason. Um, insurance, I'm sure most people listening have probably heard that has become a nightmare lately. Uh, I've got uh, actually friends who their portfolio, their annual insurance premium last year was 1 million. This year it's 2.3 million. So they literally, their expenses went up 130% just on insurance. Let me guess, was this in Texas? No, it was actually spread. In Florida? Yeah. Well, par partially in Florida and, and partially several other states. But yeah, you're, but you're actually, you're absolutely right. Florida and Texas are the two, and California are the three main culprits driving the the insurance problem. And again, not to scare everybody, you know, the silver lining on that is 
the the free market works. What's happening is insurance premiums are so high now that more carriers are coming back into the business because they can make so much money off premiums that most of the experts that I talk to now are saying that prices should level out and possibly even start coming down next year, right? So you don't need to underwrite 60% increases every year for the next five years. So don't, you know, be, pay, pay, be careful with it, but don't let that stop you. Um, a good insurance broker. I'm just trying to think. I'm sure I've uh, missed a, missed a couple, but you know those are the key ones. Um, and then you know the next question is typically, well, okay, that's great, Andrew. How do I find all of these people? Referrals, referrals, referrals. Go on Bigger Pockets forums and say, hey, I'm trying to buy 10 units in Dallas. Who else has invested in this area? And can you please connect me with your your favorite you know lender, contractor, you know syndication attorney, etc. Um, also. If you're buying a property, uh, I'm going to assume you're probably talking to a broker or agent of some kind. Uh, ask that agent, say, "Hey, if you were buying this, uh, who would you hire? To, who would you want to hire to manage it for you?" You know, that's how you find your. That's how I found our property management company that we've partnered with for like 12 years now. Just said, I literally asked the brokers, "Who would you hire to manage this thing?" And the same couple of names kept coming up over and over again. Do that for lenders. Do that for, well, hey, you know, if you were buying this, what contractors would, would you use? Um, and, and then when you talk to the lender, say, hey, do you have, uh, do you have a favorite attorney that you like to work with? And just you know, kind of do that whole circle of referrals. That is the most, that is the fastest and most effective way to build a high performing, high quality, quality team of the, the third-party people that you need to do this business. Another person that is a great resource, and I just kind of recently put this together in the last year, is the code enforcement officer of that town or city. Especially if it's a smaller town, they have more, um, you know, there's only one code enforcement officer. But anytime, you know, they go and do inspections of multifamily, so they're seeing what operators take care of the building, what property management is taking care of it, what tenants are happy, which ones are dissatisfied, and they've actually become a wealth of knowledge for me as like somebody who's like picking out as to, you know, how well has this property management company. Yeah, I really like that tip. That's a good one, especially for the, you know, under 50 unit properties. The only thing I would add is if I was asking the code inspector, I would say, hey, I'm considering buying something. And I definitely wouldn't be like, hey, I'm buying this property at this address because then they're like, oh, cool. Let me go look at it. Okay. So before we wrap up here, Andrew, I want to know one last question. Based on today's current market conditions, is there anything that you are doing to pivot today that maybe you didn't do last year or the year before? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Um, I mean, we've always had very strict criteria of what we do buy and what we don't buy. Uh, we've always had, you know, pretty conservative leverage. So we've typically never gone above 75%. But so but some of the things that we have adjusted uh, are, you know, instead of 75% leverage, now we might be 55 or 65%. Um, you know, so if the, if it's a million dollar property, you would be looking at getting a $600,000 loan, which is 60% instead of two years ago, maybe you would have gone for 800,000. So taking lower leverage, uh, also, you know, struck where we are looking at purchasing, um, trying to purchase some properties, all cash and getting no loan at all. And the reason for that is yes, it is harder to do. Because it's you got to raise that equity, and um, you know, it's it's a bigger commitment in a lot of different ways. However, 
what has changed in the market now is these days, from a seller's perspective, the most important thing is how certain they can be that you as a buyer will close. And if you can eliminate the risk of your loan blowing up, then that increases surety of close. And so that's going to increase the chance that, number one, you're going to get a better deal from that seller. Two, what that does, it means you don't have any debt service to worry about. You don't, you don't, your your interest rate's not going to fluctuate. You don't have to worry about paying the mortgage. And then two, you can patiently wait until the market shifts and it's a really good time to refinance and you do it then. You're not forced to do anything. So we're looking at buying, uh, um, again, looking at deals all cash. Also, uh, you know, if you're looking at buying a property today, it was really popular the last few years to look at a two to three year timeline don't do that. That that business model is on the shelf for now. Uh, it would be very risky to say that you have to exit two to three years from now because who knows where we're going to be. Have a longer time time frame. So typically for us, we've always looked at five years. Now we're looking more towards six, seven, and even ten years uh, because you know our best guess is the next two years might be a little turbulent, and then that is going to set up the next big bull market upcycle and and we want to we want to sell well into that upcycle so that's a few things as we're you know looking at lower debt uh, sometimes no debt uh, looking at longer hold times but the fundamentals have not changed Andrew, one one last question before we, we let you go here and it kind of ties into that last point you said that you're looking at potentially holding properties for up to 10 years you know it's a it's a decade and when i think about our rookie audience I wonder if they might have challenges um, getting an investor to commit to a deal for up to up to ten years. So, if you were a rookie investor, how would you pitch a potential deal with a ten-year hold, given that maybe you don't have that super strong track record yet? So, my the investor that funded by far the biggest amount of my flips. Uh, was a guy in his 70s. And when I brought him that very first apartment syndication that was on a five-year time frame, he looked at and said, looked at and said, you know, Andrew, this looks great, but he goes, I'll probably be dead by then. I'm not invested in that. And so you're right on. Uh, you know, it, it, it is definitely tougher to get people to invest for those longer timelines. So, you know, that's, uh, and there's not a silver bullet to it. Um I would, what I would say is, or how I would address that if I was getting started is I would build the pro forma and the projection maybe on five years, which I think, I do think five years is fine. Um, you know, just the, one of the beautiful things about real estate is time typically heals all wounds. Like the longer you can wait, generally speaking, the better it gets. Um, that's just kind of how the U.S. economy is set up. So what I would do is I would maybe focus on five years, but then set it up so that if for some reason in five years it is either a bad time to sell or it'll be very, it's very clear in five years that if you keep holding, you'll make a whole lot, whole lot more money, you have the option to do so, right? So that, and that, that's actually something that we've been very cognizant to do in our deals the last three years is they might there maybe they were set up as five or six year deals or even four year but we always made sure that the potential is there to hold longer if we either need to or want to and i'll give a perfect example we have one in the florida panhandle that we bought in 2015 
our pro forma was to sell it in 2020. We still have it, so it's going on eight years now. But that is because it makes so much money that all of the investors voted. We, you know, we took a vote because we're doing something different than what we originally said. Voted to keep it. It was a unanimous vote. No, let's keep this thing. Um, and even though it originally was five years. So that's how you end up getting a 10-year hold with investors who would otherwise never agree to 10 years is you buy it and say, look, our plan is five years. But then if you buy buy it right and operate it right and do such a good job with it, it's not going to be hard to convince people to keep it even longer. And and, and again, and then if, they, if, if, if your investor is like, no, I really do want to get out, there's different ways to structure that without selling the property. Or, hey, you know what? Sell the property, put a put a check in the win column, and then move that money somewhere else. And not even with syndications, but that example works with private money too. If you're, you know, amortizing it over ten years, you know, maybe you do the the loan callable instead of that it's actually a balloon payment where they have to give so much notice. Like we've done them where they have to give eight months notice in writing if they're going to call the loan or else it extends for, you know, a certain period of time. That's a perfect example. I actually so I have a small property that is not syndicated and we did that exact same that very thing. Um in order to not have to put quite as much cash into it, we got um, a, hand, a number of investors to do private notes. It was a two-year term. And then we said, hey, at the end of two years, the notes just go month to month. One of the investors said, yeah, I actually kind of need my money now. Can I, can you pay my note off? All of the other ones, yeah, we'll just let it keep going. But if we had said, hey, can you give us a five-year note? And that would have been a lot harder, right? But now that they're used to getting an ACH deposit in their account every month and there's nothing better to do with the money – Everyone's like, yeah, we'll keep it. So do a good job and it, the problem kind of goes away. <laughs> well, Andrew, thank you so much for this mini masterclass on multifamily. Can you let everyone know where they can reach out to you and find out some more information about you? Yes, Bigger Pockets forums, of course. Please connect with me on Bigger Pockets. And I am not a social media guy. However, I've decided to slightly catch up with the rest of the world and I am on LinkedIn now. Um, so if you comment or respond, that actually is me posting and, and actually responding. So if you want to uh, engage with different topics uh, with me, then please do that on LinkedIn. Our website is vpacq.com, short for Vantage Point Acquisitions. There's a couple of different ways uh, to connect with us there and I look forward to hopefully talking with you. And um, for those of you who are only listening to this on audio, go check out the YouTube because Ashley and Tony are the most color-coordinated hosts I have ever seen <laughs> on a podcast. They, they they look professional and perfectly match their backgrounds, like both of them. My, mine looks like 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 business barf on the wall, and they're like perfectly coordinated. So, well, hopefully they go and they watch this YouTube one because no other episode will be like that. <laughs> But Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. You can also find out more information about Andrew and get even deeper into his multifamily deals. You can go to episode 571. It is a great starting point on the Real Estate Podcast, but Andrew is a celebrity there and you will find more episodes and more information uh, on multifamily. If you would like to learn more about myself or Tony or today's guest, Andrew Cushman, Please head to the description of this episode in YouTube or your favorite podcast platform to view the show notes. Well, Andrew, that was an awesome episode, man. Really, really appreciated that. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it was fun talking with you guys. So. It's always cool when we can break down kind of like the, the meteor 
kind of more intimidating Ricky topics for, for folks and make it seem more attainable. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully they'll get some value out of that. So yeah, and no, I was, was super good, man. I'm Ashley at wealth from rentals and he's Tony at Tony J Robinson on Instagram. And we will be back with another episode. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.